before we begin, a disclaimer, this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any investment decision. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security. The securities discussed on this podcast may be owned by persons being interviewed. Before making any investment decision, please consult an investment advisor. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how you handle it. Yeah, I've got, I've got no sympathy, man. You know, it's like, it's so humid here already. I, I like shower in the morning and then I go and take my dog for a walk. And I think I've just got that all backwards. I think you got to just roll out of bed, yeah. go to the park, get all sweaty and then, and then come back and get ready for work, you know? Yeah. So you just have to be in air-conditioned environments the whole day, basically, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'll just quickly go through the background here. Gaia is a subscription video on demand company run by its founder, uh, Yurka Raisevi, who uh, owns about a third of the company. So his story is that he immigrated to the US from communist Czechoslovakia in the 80s with basically no money. He worked in a print shop, saved up some cash. And then he started a business rolling up office supply dealers. And that business was called Corporate Express. And that was sold for over $2 billion in the late 90s. And um, while he was running Corporate Express, he founded another company called Gaiam, which went public in 1999. So just to give you an idea of what this company was, here's a passage from its 1999 S1. Founded in Boulder, Colorado in 1988, Gaiam is a provider of goods, services, and information to customers who value the environment, a sustainable economy, healthy lifestyles, and personal development. Our name, Gaiam, is a fusion of the words Gaia and I am. On the Isle of Crete in ancient Greece 4,000 years ago, the Minoan civilization honored Gaia, Mother Earth. This civilization valued education, art, science, recreation, and the environment, and believed that the earth was directly connected to their existence and daily life. <laughs> so that sounds like it's pretty short. <laughs> oh my God. I was like holding, I was biting my tongue during that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, they had a bunch of yoga content back then. And in 2007, they started a streaming based subscription service based on that yoga content. Um, there were several other businesses housed inside Gaiam that I won't get into, but those were divested and the proceeds were used to tender for 40% of the outstanding shares. And that left behind what is today a pure play subscription-based streaming business. So there's four channels here. So there's yoga, which used to be the core of the business, but the company has since diversified away from it. And then there's this thing called transformation, and that's about um, spiritual growth, alternative health. Another channel called Seeking Truth, uh, that's paranormal activity, secrets, cover-ups. And then there's this the most recent one called um, Alternative Healing. So most of this content is crazy nonsense, but a lot of people are apparently into this. The subscribers seem to love it. So the app has been reviewed by 35,000 people on iOS and the average rating there is, you know, 4.8 out of five. And in an investor presentation I'm looking at, they claim to have an NPS of 70, which is higher than Netflix's 64. Although I don't know how much weight you can put on that, but that's what 
they report. You know, throughout 2017, most of 2018, they were posting, you know, 60, 70% subscriber growth, but their losses were widening just about every quarter while they were doing this. And so they're just spending tons of money on, on growing the base. I wrote the stock up at around $11 in April, 2017. I expressed a lukewarm opinion on it. The stock ran up to 23 bucks over the next year, and now it's back down to seven bucks. So it's been quite the ride. Yeah. Well, I think that's great background. And, you know, I think one thing that kind of caught me, I'm, I guess I'm newer to the name than you are, but you know, I was going back through the last conference, the conference calls over the last year. And there was this like massive uh, strategy shift, basically based on the, on the stock performance, because like given the stock, uh, the price collapse um, at the end of last year, they basically said that they're going to turn off growth or basically slow down growth massively and prove that, that they, that they can become cash flow positive. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know, I guess I've never really seen a company have such a shift, dramatic shift in their business strategy based on how the stock price performs, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. I mean, and maybe they're, maybe they're being prudent, realizing that um, the equity markets aren't going to fund their growth and then the, that they need to self-fund it. So, right. so maybe that's like the prudent thing to do. But it just seems a little bit disingenuous where it's like, if you believe in your product that much, you should be investing everything that you have into it instead of just trying to appease whatever short sellers might say. There's definitely a serious question about um, whether they can actually get to a point where they can self-fund their growth. I think the most recent results sort of show that they were maybe a little too optimistic on that front. But I guess if you sort of look past the the growth aspect of this and just look at maybe the the qualitative attributes of this business. I mean, it's it seems structurally like so this is a high gross margin business. 90 like 90% of the content is exclusive to Gaia and it includes worldwide rights. So they have their own in-house studio. They make their own content. It's not expensive to produce. Yeah. So on that point, they say that um, an hour um, of content costs them um, about $10,000. And they compare that to Netflix, which I think, what was it? 10, 10 million? Yeah. And of course, it's, it's, um, it's just all a fixed cost to them. And at least on the Seeking Truth side, there's no serious competition as far as I can tell. It's a niche market with an uncertain TAM. I'm not sure that it would be immediately obvious for somebody else to pursue. Yoga, I think it's a different story. I see that as a commodity. You can find yoga content anywhere. I'm sure that there are direct-to-consumer classes and stuff like that out there, yoga apps and whatever. But this is that's becoming a smaller and smaller part of the business. Um, and so when I wrote this up a few years ago, yoga was like 60% of their subs. And I'm not, I'm not sure what it is now, but I'm guessing less than half since like 80% of their sub acquisitions have come from I th- seeking truth. I think they I think. said, I think they said it's around like 30% right now. And, and, and yeah, okay. and the mix is shifting more away, um, more towards like seeking truth than like self-help. Right. And so what's the TAM here? I mean, I have no idea <laughs> how many people out there are into conspiracy theories and dubious metaphysical claims and Deepak Chopra scientism. I mean, I guess I can say Deepak Chopra has 3.3 million followers on Twitter. <laughs> so if you want to use that as a benchmark, but um, I don't know. I'm it's almost, there. I feel like it's almost irrelevant just because, I mean, right now the company's at half a million subs and it's like, you, you know, yeah. it's it, the TAM is multiples of, of that. And so, yeah, that's true. But I worry because the churn is so high, if they're just churning through like the entire <laughs> yeah. base, you know, 
<laughs> how many used to be subs are now have right. off there. <laughs> well one thing yeah i mean one thing just on like one thing on like the qualitative side of things you know it really is it, it is interesting that they compare their content costs versus versus the, let's say like netflix but um at the end of the day uh-huh. i think it's kind of important to look at how much they're investing into making the product a good product because the more you spend on product development the lower your CAC is going to be and the, the larger your LTV is going to be. People are just going to be drawn to your product and they're going to want to stick around for longer. And so if you compare like their numbers to, to Netflix, it's like almost like inverse. Like Netflix is investing all of their money into content and that's just making that product not much better. And these guys, I feel like, are just focused on pulling people in and, and less so on the content. And you've seen content spend per user fall I guess a lot faster than it has at Netflix, just because uh, they're not keeping up. They're basically they've kept it relatively stable over the last couple of years, and so to me, it's like where are you? Yeah, where are you spending your resources? Is this just a, a customer acquisition play, or is this actually like let's build a real business here and you know try to um, create it like a valuable product that people actually enjoy? Yeah, it's a good point. Piggybacking off that, there's been some new data disclosed. Uh, we were talking about this a little bit. A little bit the other day they collected 2.7 times in cash what they spent to acquire customers in 2014 so they're apparently earning good returns on their sack so there's signs that the bull case maybe isn't as fake as the content that they produce <laughs> of course that doesn't that doesn't include like the investment they need to make in content in order to retain yeah. and grow those subs right so like the good news here is that there's enormous operating leverage in this model so if you just forget about the subscriber acquisition costs for a moment the rest of their costs including the content costs are mostly fixed and and those should grow at a moderate pace and so if you look at their pre-sac ebitda in 2014 it was minus 4 million and here we are four years later and it's positive 16 million and uh, 33% margins and the enterprise value is around 100 million. So, you know, the thing trades seven times pre SAC EBITDA. And if they're investing all that EBITDA into SAC and they're earning three times that spend over four years, well, that's obviously an attractive proposition. And, and they'll scale the content over time. Now, the thing is, they're not generating enough pre SAC EBITDA to fund the 20 million in content and the SAC required to grow subs by 30% a year. And there's not enough cash on the balance sheet or enough capacity on their credit line to do this. So it seems like something's got to give. Maybe they take out a mortgage on the property that they own. I don't know. But if all they had was the pre-tech EBITDA and the cash on the balance sheet to invest in content and marketing, I guess the question is, what would this thing, what would things look like in five years? How fast would their subscriber base grow then? Are they going to be tapping out their acquisition channels and end up paying more per sub? I don't know. These are these are all sort of open questions. I mean, just on the cash burn, EBITDA last CapEx was about nine, uh, a loss of nine million bucks last last quarter, and that was a quarter where they slowed customer acquisition. And so, yeah, you know, they have twenty two million dollars of cash on the balance sheet, so they really only have two quarters really to get this done. Yeah, I guess just back 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 to the point on um, like unit economics. I guess the way that I I've been kind of thinking about this is. You know, obviously everything comes down to um, LTV to CAC. And let's just take, um, let's just say it's three to make the math easy. Let's let's assume that they don't care about growing the business and they just want to 
get to like a like a like a stable run rate, just like flat revenue. All right, so a user a user um, generates like a hundred bucks of revenue per year, and yeah, no, so no, ninety in gross, ninety, 90 in gross, and, then, and then yeah, thirty in, in customer acquisition, roughly, and another twenty in content. Um, and so that brings you down to forty bucks of prop. So if CAC, if LTV to CAC is is three, then your customer acquisition has to be basically $33 a year just to maintain flat revenue. And so if every year each sub is pulling in 100 in revenue, 90 in gross profit, subtract 30 in stack, that leaves 60 bucks per sub to cover fixed costs uh, and content. And so to make the math easy, overhead, let's say, is 40 million, content is 20 million. So that implies that you need a million subs to cover those fixed costs. Yeah. One of the issues here is that, you know, back when this thing was trading in the 20s, this was, there, so there are a lot of small cap value funds that own this stock and that were pretty excited about it. And I think back when it was trading in the double digits, it was um, definitely kind of positioned as a growth story. And now it seems like a few of the things that management said um, during that time have turned out to be far too optimistic. So, you know, for instance, you know, they were saying they could grow subs by 30% a year and still be profitable. And well, over the last year, they grew subs by 34% and they lost 34 million bucks <laughs> doing that. And they generated negative 40 million free cash flow. And I guess they also said that by 2021, so two years from now, they could do 50 million EBIT. But even when you strip out the sack, they're only doing 8 million EBIT today. So 50 million two years from now doesn't seem really realistic. Right. Right. And so, and, and so, and, and so there's first this question of, you know, can they fund that growth with their existing cash resource? And the, there's another question about whether or not they're actually generating that three X yeah. right on the to begin with. Um, so, and so I, have, yeah, I was just yeah. going to say, how, how do you think about, um, how do you think about what their actual LTV to CAC is? I don't, so the problem I have is I have a hard time reconciling what they say about their unit economics with what we see on the income statement. Because I guess what we're hearing is that the subscriber mix is becoming higher quality. So seeking truth subs or higher LTV. They were saying that their acquisition costs have declined from you know mid 90s per, per sub to like low 80s over the last few years. They say that LTV has gone up and so is their pricing. And yet none of this really seems apparent when you look at the financials. Now, it's not an apples to apples comparison because the income statement reflects a blend of all the cohorts. And so even if each cohort returns three times SAC, the high churn from prior cohorts offsets the growth that you might otherwise expect mm -hmm. to see on the income statement. Even so, like their SAC expenses, expenses have meaningfully outpaced their subscriber growth over the last few years. And there's just been no leverage there, despite like what they're actually, what they're saying. And so this notion that they can grow profitably at 30% a year looks like a fantasy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess, so the way that I was looking at it is, um, let's just take them at their word for um, like what their customer acquisition costs are. So um, for most quarters, they kind of tell you what it was in the quarter. And it was in the, like the mid to high 80s last year. They said they got it down to $80 in Q1. Um, so, and they also tell you how much dollars they spend on customer acquisition. So you can basically calculate what gross ads are 
and by the net ads, you can figure out kind of what what attrition is. If we assume like a let's say they their CAC was like mid eighties and they did, and their staff over the last year was forty two million. But that's fine. And let, let's just say forty two million of SAC and and mid eighties, right? Okay, eighty five. So, yeah. So that's a half million subs or something like that. Gross. Yeah, half million. And so their actual, yeah, that's actually what I, I calculated 540 for last year. And their actual net, they're not, yeah, they went from 418 to 560. So the net growth was 140. And yeah, there's like 530 of yeah. ads. Yeah. And so I'm calculating churn of about 380,000. And it's not completely fair because because the the denominator has grown pretty fast. So, you, but even if you just sum up like the quarterly churn, it comes to like eighty yeah. percent. And so that implies that people are sticking around for like I don't know fifteen quarters or fifteen months or something. If if people are sticking around for fifteen months and customer acquisition is around eighty bucks, and let's say they get about um, ninety bucks. Um, of gross profit per sub per year, that kind of implies $120 of LTV over 80, which is like 1.5. Another place you see this is if you look at the unit economics exhibit that they showed here on their presentation. But if you look at the difference in the cumulative cash return from like yeah. December 2018 to December 2019, 2014 cohort, it changes very little, like from 2.7 times to 2.9 times. And it suggests that almost all of the subs that they picked up here in 2014 have turned off. Yeah. You know, we talked about this a little bit offline, but it's pretty clear that like most of the money that they get is in the first two years after that, it's very, it's very, it's diminuous. But I also just like didn't understand some of these numbers. So like, the cumulative, cumulative cash collected versus the annualized cash collected compare. Let's just take the 2017 cohort, cumulative cash collection of 20, 27 million, annualized of 13, you know, that checks the box, that's 2017, 2018, so 13 times two. The 2016 cohort checks the box, it's it's 17 and six, so six times three. Um, and then the 2015 cohort, it's like 12 and one and a half. It's like, all right, and like, not that it's a big deal, but it's, you know, if they're putting out these numbers and they don't make sense, it just kind of makes you question some of the other assumptions that they're telling people. Yeah. A big part of the, the bull case on this was, was management and Yurka Raisavi and the fact that he had built this big business before and sold it for a huge sum. And so I think a lot of people were looking at this as both a growth story, but also a jockey bet. But it does seem like when you when you look at sort of the you know expectations that they've had that have not come to fruition, it does kind of put a dent on um, on at least half that thesis. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Like, I think people are probably looking at um, you know Netflix has been incredibly successful, and so if you're right and this thing actually works out, the upside is you know multiples of your money, and so you know maybe that kind of risk return profile is kind of what attracts people into it. Yeah. I I mean, on our last call with Andrew, I talked about Netflix and about Netflix and um, how scale begets scale because more subs you have, the better return they can get on content spend. And then mm-hmm. the more content they have, the more subs they can retain and attract. 
But I think it's fair to say that we're definitely in the pre-moat <laughs> territory here <laughs> with Gaia, and it may be a no-moat situation. I'm not 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 really sure, but um, but I do think it's it's a little bit troubling here that all we're hearing about is how the unit economics are just getting incrementally better and better, but there just seems to be no scale here <laughs> on the income statement. Right. And in fact, the scale just seems to be going the other way. So despite all of the confounding issues of of that apples to apples, uh, that all the issues that confound that apples to apples comparison, there should be some. It just seems to me there should be some kind of right link there. I mean, I think that's a great point. It's just kind of like big picture. The story that they're telling you qualitatively does not tie to the numbers that you're seeing. I guess to that point, like we're even if we're off by ten or twenty percent. I mean, I just feel like yeah, right, right, the, yeah. The difference is just so wide that like there's just like this huge bridge. Bridge too, uh, a bridge too far, I guess. A bridge too far. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Do we have anything <laughs> more to, to add about on this one? I think it's, um, I mean, we, I think we, we, we sort of came out negative on this. I, but it's not a stock I would short either. It's just kind of one that I feel has a lot of question marks to it. Um, enough question marks where I would feel uncomfortable just taking their numbers at face value. Uh, because if you just took their numbers at face value, I could see how this could be a really attractive long. You know, if you're if you're buying this thing at seven times pre-sec EBITDA, and they're getting three times their return on that, yeah, it's pretty good. But yeah, but dude, I mean, to your prior po- but to your prior points, like, how are you going to get? You, you have to be able to fund the growth, and they've got two quarters. <laughs> Yeah. You have to be able to fund the growth. Yeah, exactly. So like, are they going to do a big share issuance here? I, d- I don't see how they, they're going to be able to do that. And no, no position here. I think you're right. I think it's, it's definitely too, I think it's too risky of, of a long, but you just don't want, yeah. I mean, the upside is, is huge. And so I don't know if you really want to get caught in front of that. Um, but it's an interesting company to look at. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's entertaining at least. All right. Do you want to uh, do you want to wrap this? Cool.